0: Greetings ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the You Can Do It Too podcast by Mamba Inspired. I am Mamadou Balde, I'm your host. The purpose of this podcast is to both showcase black excellence and increase awareness of the multitude of career possibilities out there for up-and-coming black professionals. This podcast will assist in breaking stigmas, barriers and helping black students believe that they are smart enough to be future doctors engineers, Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Kwame. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a Friday, 9 a.m. <laughs> and I know it's busy and all of that. But thank you for giving us your time. Let's jump right right into it. So okay. you you grew up in California. You come, you come from California, grew up in California.
1: What city exactly? Yes, yeah. uh, born and raised in San Jose, California, which is Approximately 50 miles south of San Francisco, um, San Jose is the uh, epicenter of Silicon Valley. So it's mm-hmm. right there with Cupertino, Mountain View, Palo Alto, where all of these uh, you know these big social media and computer companies such as Apple, Facebook, Google mm-hmm. have arisen. Uh, so, but when I grew up there, um, it wasn't really. Uh, Silicon Valley was just starting yes, to become, sir. but it's it's really was just a nice suburban, um, you know, kind of outpost of San Francisco. Very nice place to grow up. When did they, when did Silicon Valley start? Like well, the idea of Silicon Valley. So actually, Silicon Valley actually started back in the fifties, sixties. Mm-hmm. It was actually. Um, It really got its recognition when the United States started um, pushing for the um, uh, space exploration. Yes, sir. So, you know, Stanford, who was a big academic powerhouse, uh, started to have some of its engineers and whatnot that were associated with Stanford start to build companies, um, HP and some other chip companies, which really helped fuel the engineering for the rockets and whatnot. And from there... With the uh, chip being really designed and manufactured there, that really started the whole boom of yes, Silicon sir. Valley. Yes, sir. But I heard that's what Austin gonna be like in a couple of years. Yeah, well, it's growing. <laughs> uh, un- unfortunately, you know, I ran away from California to leave all of the congestion, the high price. Yeah. And now I'm really starting to see. It's like said, <laughs> Austin. Day. Yep, Austin's starting to, to to follow that path, but Austin's still a beautiful place to live. Wow.
0: So, what was growing up like in that atmosphere as an African American
1: uh, man during that time? Sure, you know, uh, San Jose, um, like I said, was is very diverse. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I went to public school there in the east side of San Jose. Um, So, um, you know, in my in my high school, we're we're talking about probably twenty percent, fifteen twenty percent African American, Mm -hmm. another twenty five percent. Asian, probably about 35, 30% white, and a lot in the mm-hmm. remainder Latino. Mm-hmm. Very diverse place, so uh, I-, I love that environment. You know, friends of all colors, all backgrounds, um, speaking multiple language, eat, eating great food. Mm-hmm. You know, Barry has some great food, so it was, a, it was a great place to grow up and be just exposed to all of that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that that wasn't the world at large. Yeah. And what year was that? Mm. So um, I was born in 73, so I um, I basically, you know, high school, college was from 80s to 90, yeah. 91.
0: Definitely, and I'm, I'm guessing during that time, none of the things that was happening in LA uh, haven't started yet.
1: Well, when I was in college is when we had the riots. Yeah. Um, so when I was doing my undergrad at UC Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz is right along the coast uh close to San Jose. Yes sir. That's when um you know we had the uh Rodney King uh Rodney King uh um riots down in LA. Mm-hmm. But uh LA is far removed from northern California. So um uh, we weren't directly impacted by that.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: So growing up,
0: was uh, education an expectation for you or a privilege? Was it something? No, that- you know, you know my,
1: uh, I'm first-generation uh, Ghanaian American. My, my parents are—actually, my entire family was born and primarily raised in Ghana, which is a country on, in West Africa. And I think it's very common mm. for uh, <clears throat> immigrants, excuse me, first-generation immigrants to be raised mm. with this expectation that, you know, Education is a privilege, and so you have to come here, you have to study hard, you have to understand that with a good, solid education, basically the world is available to you. So it, there was at no time when I was growing up where uh, I thought that I can just sit on my hands and not take advantage of mm-hmm. what America had in terms of education. So I, I studied hard and I enjoyed it, but my parents made it very well known that I was going to get a good education. hmm
0: So, growing up uh, here in California, having parents who are from uh, Ghana, how hard was it to, how to call it, uh, balance the pressure between learning the African culture, I'm sure, that your parents instilled in you,
1: versus the American culture that you learned in school? Sure. I don't think it was difficult at all. You know, honestly, you just, you only know what you're exposed to. Mm -hmm. And so, if you are raised with these foundational principles that your parents instill into you in day one, which is, you know, it's a privilege. Mm-hmm. There are millions, there are billions of people around the world who would love the opportunity to grow up in America and have a great free education and you are gonna take advantage of that, I mean, that's just what you know and you don't take it for granted, you just know that this is the expectation. And of course, you do have friends that are American and you are born in this country and raised as an American. So you have to understand that your experience is different than your parents, but but there are certain things that are just a priority and education is one. So yeah, you learn how to balance going out, having fun with your friends, but still, knowing you're going to study hard, you're going to get good grades, and you are not going to shirk this responsibility. Because there are millions of people back in Ghana who would love to have this opportunity to grow up with this. Uh, in yes,
0: America. sir. Yes, sir. Many people do not think uh, uh, about this nowadays. Actually, maybe they do because it still happened. But during that time of the rioting, uh, the Ronnie King time, as a black man, being like, Around 18, 19, 20 year old, what did that mean to you? Like how how did that affect you? Yeah.
1: So you know, you 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 know, at least I was torn. Mm-hmm. You understand the frustration of the African American community in which you see someone who is essentially innocent being brutalized by the police captured on video and yet still being acquitted and knowing that if that happened to someone who was not black um if that happened to someone that was not black that they uh, most likely the police would have been convicted so you see the frustration of the community the unfairness this happens of course that is just one Incident that happens probably on a weekly basis in those communities. It just happened to have been captured on video and broadcast for everyone to see. So you understand why people are frustrated and why they feel like they have to vent out because there's no one there to actually truly give them justice. However, on the flip side, you can see that unfortunately, the main people being hurt by the rioting is the actually African-American community itself, right? Mm -hmm. Buildings are being burned down. Police, National Guard are being called in for civil unrest. People are being jailed and hurt and some people even being killed. So Mm -hmm. you're torn because you see the frustration, you can understand the frustration of decades and decades, centuries of injustice. Mm -hmm. However, in the end, it is that African-American community that's burning and mainly those people that are suffering. Yes, sir. So Wow. And it, that, g- that could have been anybody, too. Uh, absolutely. And that that happens. I mean, you know, that is just one, you know, that riot just represents one of a long history of riots due to civil unrest, due to injustice in the African-American community over the last centuries.
0: Wow. So you, after you graduated from high school, you decided to go to UC Santa Cruz. Correct. Right how was what what did you had to sacrifice to go there like how hard was it to
1: you know honestly it, it, so the university of california system um i think is one of the best public um educational systems in the country it's it's similar to the to university U-teaching, exactly yeah. where if you are you know top 10% at that time at least it was top 10% you are guaranteed entrance into one of the uc campuses mm-hmm. um Great education, great cost. I mean, it at the time that I went to school, you could essentially work part time and probably pay for most of your tuition. Wow. Yeah, and when you come out, you know, you get a great education, and it really opens up the world to get a good, a good, um, a good job mm-hmm. or further educational opportunities. What did I have to sacrifice to go there? Honestly, I didn't. I don't think much at all. Mm-hmm. I, again, when you're raised in a household where it's just an expectation
0: mm-hmm.
1: that you're going to work hard, steady hard, get an education, then you just take it for granted. You know, there are millions of households across this country to this day. Filled with immigrants and non-immigrant children mm-hmm. where the expectation is you're just going to study hard get a good education and go on to higher education so when you take that when you take that for granted then you don't even think of it as a sacrifice you just think of yeah in high school maybe i can't go out to every party mm-hmm. sometimes i gotta stay home and study that's okay that's your responsibility did you always know you <clears throat> wanted to do medicine I did. I did. From a young age, I was always interested in science and human physiology, so I wow. just knew I wanted
0: to. What, ex- what, what year <clears throat> exactly? What age? Do you uh,
1: honestly, as far back, as I, I would think in third, fourth grade, when people would ask me what I wanted to do, I wanted to be a, a physician.
0: Wow. That's amazing. That's very different from now because many young men and female <clears throat> do not see themselves. Especially African Americans do not see themselves in that position. They do not see people. Uh, Every day, who look like them, who are in this position, and automatically they think that's not possible for them.
1: Right, I can understand.
0: That's amazing. So you decided to you left there and decided to go to UCLA for medical school. Correct.
1: Yeah, I went to UCLA and I did a combined program, medicine and uh, uh, physiology. Did some research as well.
0: Wow, what was uh what was the hardest thing you ever had to face in
1: medical school? (coughs) Excuse me. I'll be honest with you. Um, I found graduate school to be more difficult than medical school. Wow. Um, and it's, it's because, you know, medical school, the most difficult part about medical school really is just the amount of information you have to memorize. Mm-hmm. But truly once you learn how to memorize information and retain it to regurgitate it on the test, then it's just an exercise and memorization. Um, Graduate school I found more difficult because graduate school is nothing about memorization. It is truly about doing independent research, doing experiments to try to determine uh, the solutions to problems. And in science, the majority of experiments don't work. You know, medical school is really a predetermined path. If you attend these classes, which are all laid out for you, if you can – learn the information enough to pass the test. And then if you just show up to your clinical rotations, you're going to pass. There's no doubt about it. Medical schools are also very good about once you get into medical school, most of them are going to do whatever they can in their power to make sure you successfully matriculate through the program. Yes, sir. Graduate school is very different. Graduate school is, okay, this is the general outline of what you need to do. You need to take these certain courses, sure, but you need to come up with an independent thesis. And if that thesis takes you two years to get through, great. I have known people have taken seven to eight years for them to get enough. Wow. So there's no, there's no specific guidelines. There's no specific time frame in which you are guaranteed that if you show up, you're going to be finished in three years, four years. It can be as little as two, three years. It can be as much as eight to nine years. Wow. And, so you. yeah, so it's it's that, it is that um, uncertainty, that really makes grad stud, uh, grad graduate studies, in my opinion, more difficult than medical school.
0: Yes, sir. Uh, so it is well known that in many African households, we are taught the meaning of self confidence. Like we are just. Confident, we're right? taught to be confident in our abilities. To God, then believe that we can be best among everybody, right? But then you come to UCLA, you come to UC Santa Cruz Medical School, Graduate School, or even Undergraduate. Then you find that there are so many people who are as smart as you, right? And you're trying to stand out. Did you have hard time fighting those intimidation, the imposter syndrome
1: during class? No. No, I didn't. You know, honestly, it, it was about—I I think I had the 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 luck and the perseverance of having a good preparation mm-hmm. throughout high school and undergrad. So when I got to medical school, again, yes, it's a lot of information to memorize, but in no sense did I feel like I was— uh, I definitely wasn't number one in my class, but I, I I felt like I was doing a really good, solid job and did was not intimidated, did not feel anybody knew anything more than me.. Wow. um, and again, it's really about, you know, I think a lot of it is just really that preparation, mm-hmm. you know, knowing, and it's okay. you're not going to be the smartest. That's fine. I don't need to be the smartest. I need to be good and confident in my abilities and know that if I'm put into a new environment, I'm going to figure out how to learn what I need to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to utilize the resources around me, whether it's it's other grad, excuse me, other uh, medical students, graduate students, uh, teachers. Um, I know how to open up books and learn things for myself. If I'm getting stuck, there's other resources there for you to uh, lean on. People for the most part and now maybe undergrad pre-med is different and mm-hmm. that there's a very competitive environment but honestly, once you get into medical school, you're always gonna find your little group, group yes sir who are going to be supportive of you great great classmates um, that I keep in touch with. To this day. So, yeah, you will find that group of people to help support you that you're going to support as well. Steady groups and whatnot. And it doesn't mean that everything's always going to go perfect. You're going to have difficulties, but you'll have that network of people to draw on and to support you and vice versa.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you finish your medical school with UCLA mm-hmm. and for the first time you had to leave California and go to University of New Mexico. Correct. Right. For residency.
1: Yes. What was that transition like? Was it your first time out of California? Um, I, I had lived in Toronto um, when I was a young child for about two and a half years. So it wasn't my first time living outside of California, but as an adult, yes. Mm-hmm um it was culturally <laughs> culturally it was a it was a little jarring you know california again i grew up in you know i grew up in the bay area south bay area which is very diverse yes sir. went to la which is just as diverse um you know used to great food great weather and just a very different type of lifestyle mm-hmm. and to transition to albuquerque new mexico which is um uh, it's a relatively poor state, not many resources. Uh, the The uh, climate is very different. It's high desert, dry snow, uh, snows in the winter, um, and culturally, you know, not diverse. Um, you do have a sizable Native American population, but the rest of the population is not, not very diverse. It, it was different, but— mm-hmm. Again, I went there for a specific purpose. My purpose was to get into a very good emergency medicine uh, program that's going to expose me to very critically ill, sick population, Mm -hmm. uh, trauma, and medical illnesses. And for that purpose, it it was perfect. It was a great place to train.
0: Wow. Wow. Did you have any other options during when you came out of medical school?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So basically what happens is um, when you're uh, when you're in medical school and you decide on which uh, specialty you want to go into, Mm -hmm. you basically um, you basically interview at different programs. So I wanted to go into emergency medicine. I, I I believe I interviewed at about. 12 residency programs around the country. Mm-hmm. I was very adamant that I wanted to leave California, um, uh, primarily because of cost of living and congestion. I had had enough of <laughs> California. So I be- I think I only interviewed at maybe two or three programs in California just in case. But um, the main programs that I, I looked at, um, that I seriously considered were uh, the University of New Mexico, which was the one I ultimately go- went to in uh, Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. I, went, I interviewed at a program in um, North Carolina called the Carolinas. A very, very good um, emergency medicine program out there. Uh, Programs also, um, one or two programs in the Northeast and so forth. But um, so, yeah. And then basically what happens is you interview at these programs and then you do what we call a match list. So you rank those programs from number one through, in my case, number 12 Mm -hmm. in terms of the level, um, in terms of your interest. And I ranked uh, University of New Mexico as my number one Uh, program because of a combination of the rigor of the program as well as climate. It it was the most temperate climate of all the places that I had went to. I also interviewed in Phoenix. There was a great program down there. But then after a while, I decided I didn't want to uh, be exposed to 110 degrees <laughs> most of the year weather, so. Then you came to Texas. Then I came I <laughs> to Austin, so. But yeah, so I ranked it. University of New Mexico was my number one. Luckily, they also ranked me high as well, so... I matched into their program and spent three years there.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So coming out of medical school, how hard was it to choose that specialty? emergency medicine? You know,
1: it, it wasn't to, for me, it came down to um, emergency medicine or cardiology. Okay. Those were my two top choices. Um, I was one of those people that I essentially liked every rotation I went on. Wow. Yeah, cool. you know, uh, even, even gynecology which a lot of males don't like. I, I love gynecology. Didn't love OB as much, but obstetrics, but I love gynecology. Um, I liked internal medicine fine and whatnot. But for me, it basically came down to um, I had a very strong interest in cardiology, mm-hmm. um, ion channels and the functional functioning of the heart and so forth, but specifically... I was interested in uh, a sub-specialty of cardiology called electrophysiology. And um, when I started, really, I I had a couple of mentors who were electrophysiologists, and they let me shadow them during medical school. And what I realized was, you know, the training path for electrophysiology Mm -hmm. is actually way, way too— was longer than I was willing to commit to, you know— in in medical school, I had already done a combined uh, program, which um, took me eight years to do. You know, medical school and graduate school. So I went up. By the time I left medical school into residency, I was already about four years older than a typical a typical first year resident.
0: Yes, sir. And
1: so when I looked at how long it would take to do electrophysiology, that is three years of internal medicine residency then it's another, you know, two to three years of basic cardiology. And then to do electrophysiology, you have to do a fellowship, which is another one or two years. Yes, sir. So, you know, you're talking a minimum of another seven or so years of training after I already did eight years of medical school and graduate school. Wow. And I was like, I just, at some point, you know, you gotta be, Enough is enough with the training. You just got to get to work. So it was primarily because of that length of training that I decided I did I did not want to do electrophysiology. What I like about emergency medicine is, again, I loved all my rotations. So I love the fact that, uh, you know, emergency medicine allows me to do and see a variety of different medical and traumatic conditions, mm-hmm. and I also realized after a period of time that I was not one that wanted to become a primary care physician and deal with people for years and years and years. I really want to address their acute emergent issue, fix it if I can, temporize it, and then get them on to someone else. And so uh, that's that's the definite definition of emergency medicine dealing yes, with the acute issues so that's that's why that's,
0: that's amazing cool. so many m- many people know that residency is one of the most is some of the most atrocious years that many uh, medical students go through because it requires a lot of hours you have to spend a lot of hours and the more hour you spend around the doctors, the better you are the better you learn and all of that. What was the hardest moment for you in residency?
1: So let's see, I would say we did a lot of um, my program at the University of New Mexico was very heavily weighted towards um, intensive care. Mm -hmm. We did intensive care rotations every year, either one or two every year for all three years. And I would say probably the first the first weeks of ICU rotation as a senior. Because the first year you do it as a um, first year intern, you are paired with someone who's more senior than you. So the responsibility is not really on your hands. You always have someone senior to you that's gonna be making the decisions and you're just kinda helping support them. But at the second year, you become the senior on that rotation. And so you're dealing with the sickest, the sickest patients that, you know, 2 a.m. They need to have breathing tubes put into them or chest tubes put into them or, you know, invasive big IVs put into their groin or neck. And there's no attending physician. There's no fellow that's in the place with you. So you have to make those decisions quickly. You can consult them by phone if need be, but you're the one that ultimately has to do it. And, you know, the first couple of times when you're in that role, for most most people, it can be a little intimidating. So I would say senior, first senior rotation as a, a critical care senior resident would would be the – the ones that really stand out.
0: Yes, sir. So in 2007, you decided to move to Austin now. I did. Texas. Uh Texas. Today you are an emergency physician. Correct. Right? Uh, so what was the most surprising thing when you got here, if you as far as like working with, because uh, you've been training and all of that, but this is your first time going to work, right? Right. It, was there anything different that you encountered that you were surprised of?
1: <clears throat> Excuse me. No. And and the reason was I was lucky so many many senior residents moonlight mm-hmm. during their last year of residency. So moonlighting is basically you take a job as a kind of a junior attending physician mm-hmm. outside of your training program in the community and you get paid a little bit more and you basically get to work as a full-fledged physician. Yeah, and um, my through my program, I had the opportunity to do a lot of moonlighting during my entire uh, third year in a very rural emergency room. And very it could be very scary at times because you're in the middle of nowhere with no other doctor around but it was a good opportunity to really cut your teeth and get that real world experience yes, sir. without having any backup so because i basically had about nine months of moonlighting under my belt in an environment where we did see very sick people by the time i graduated and uh basically was a full-fledged attending physician um, here on my own, I had had enough of that experience. Not that, I, again, I felt, you know, that I was capable of doing everything and whatever, but I had enough experience as an independent practicing physician that, no, I felt pretty comfortable. You know, high volume, um, knowing, learning how to make decisions relatively quickly, and, um, and also knowing, the other thing about being an emergency physician is knowing when you need backup and being comfortable calling those other specialists to back you up, which is the surgeon, ICU physician, cardiologist, knowing when it's appropriate to call them and uh, invoke other physicians for their help. So I felt relatively, relatively confident. There was no big surprises to me.
0: Okay. So another thing is also the fact that, so in many other, how to call it, careers, right, People talk about minorities minority uh, employees talk about the fact that they feel like they have to work twice as hard to get their colleagues respect, right? Did
1: you feel like you had to do that? I'll be honest no. No. I, I, I you know, I I and, and I understand that and in uh other environments I can see that as well. Um maybe it just has to do with the fact that I have this confidence and I just come in, and I just going to do my job. And you know what, if you want to, if you, if you have any doubt in my, my skills, my abilities or whatnot, then you're, you know, you are welcome to go get a second opinion somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I can't say that. And I've worked in a lot of environments since moving to Texas. I've worked in very rural environments in the middle of nowhere. I've worked in, you know, urban environments, San Antonio, Austin. And, no, I can't say that whether it's with other colleagues or patients that I've had this sense that I have to prove myself. You know, I come in, I feel like I'm very competent. I feel like I can communicate well. Um, so, no, I, I, don't, yes, sir. I don't feel like I have. No,
0: that's good. That's good. So the last segment here is... Mental health, mm-hmm. right? So many people in uh, how to call it, in in our culture, African, African American, Latino, minority cultures, sure. right? Do not talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. Whenever those issues occur, usually people tell you, "Ah, uh, just go through it," you know. Sure. They, there's no space. There's no safe space to come out and really talk about what you're dealing with. Yes. Right. And I know medical school and resident. The journey to being a doctor is one of the hardest that many people face. Yeah. Right. And uh, sometimes everybody struggle. And mm-hmm. having a. Night having a safe place for you to come out and talk to people about it help you help make the journey smoother. Right. right? And sometimes most of us have to drop out because we, f- we don't have that. Safe space. Yeah. So, during your journey, have you ha- did that? Did you have any issues of mental health, or or any friends who had uh, that kind of issue?
1: Yes. Yes. Definitely. Um. I, again, for for me personally, I I felt that mo- most trying years was during graduate school when things were just not going smooth. Mm-hmm. And you know, who would I turn to? Friends, primarily. Mm-hmm. Friends, girlfriend at the time, wife now, would be kind of my support system to help me say, okay, you know what? Things are really bad. These are some certain things that you need to do in order to persevere. So definitely having that network. Again, when we talk about, you know, when you get to medical school, I can guarantee you wherever in the country you go to medical school, despite what your background is, there are going to be at least a handful of people there that can relate to you that you feel comfortable with. So the importance is identifying those people early, uh... you know, to build this little safe space, this network around you where you can lean on people and and feel comfortable opening up to people when you're having issues and vice versa, be that support for others Mm -hmm. when they're having issues as well. Um, So I did, I had that network around me of people I can vent to. Or people who can help give me some guidance or support. Um, there were a lot of um, a lot of medical students and even residents who had some very serious mental health issues, depression, suicidality. It's not unusual, unfortunately, for a medical student to take their life. Wow. Yeah. So suicide is a It's a big issue that's now only starting to be really addressed and recognized, whether it's in medical school or even residency. Some people feel overwhelmed, feel like they need to keep up this facade of being strong and nothing's getting to them. And all the while they're being eaten up inside and they don't take the opportunity to either take a break, take time off uh, some people realize during medical school that they're absolutely miserable, and that that they this is not the right career path for them. And there are certain people that I've known that have basically dropped out of medical school and said, "You know what?" One of my roommates, actually second year, he came from a family of physicians, mm-hmm. um, and he was not he was actually uh, Jewish, so he was, you know he was not African American. Came from a family of physicians, very very intelligent guy. He was in my combined program with me. And he just realized he absolutely hated it. Um, He could do the work, but he just was not inspired to. And he dropped out and wound up. I think he just wound up um, working in the lab as a tech. Loved it much better. And, you know, he just he he recognized early he was never going to like it to stop. You know, stop trying to do things to satisfy his parents or Mm -hmm. satisfy his friends and family, change his career path and found happiness. And that is something that I think is very important. You know, I think a lot of people get onto this pathway because of external pressures or Mm -hmm. think they it's just this ideal of being a physician. But you got to really, like you said, it's not an easy path. So you got to truly enjoy it. Exactly. When you enjoy it, it's not as difficult to sit there and steady Friday nights, Saturday nights and whatnot. It's still hard, (laughs) but it's just not as difficult.
0: Yes, sir. You you get the motivation somewhere. You have a motivation. Sometimes you need that purpose, right? You need what you're doing, how you're going to do it, and why you're doing it. Without that, why you're doing it, it's just hard. It's hard. It's hard to compete.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, identifying those people. Building that network around you for support will really help you get through these hard times. And the other thing, too, is there are services. you got to remember, in, 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 as far as I know, all medical school, schools, they should have student services. They should have, and as part of student services, they should have mental health services. They do have counselors, psychologists, sometimes even psychiatrists that are available to students. Because by the time they recruit you, Into medical school, schools have invested a lot of energy, a lot of money into you. Once they accept you into their program, they really try their best to retain you in there. Yes, sir. And so looking for those resources because they're they're out there. Yes, sir. I talked to
0: so many people, so many friends here who came to UT saying, I'm pre-med, I'm I'm pre-med, but one year, two years, they decide that that's not what they want to do. Yes. They are good in art like many many people from african countries asian countries like or other countries when they come here you need to be a doctor you need to be an engineering or a lawyer right Mm -hmm. but people many parents don't realize that nowadays there is so many other options right people love art people love music and stuff like that photography so these students come in here and say not what i want to do that's not my passion right yes but the hardest thing is just having that confidence to go back and go against their parents yes just
1: to explain to them this is not what i want absolutely And, and and of course it is not easy i mean i saw i had a a number of uh medical school classmates exactly in that scenario they decided even in medical school they they like we love medicine, but I want to become a family physician. Yes, sir. But you have all of the pressure coming from the parents. No, you are going to be a surgeon. A sur- surgeons are respected, and I knew this one girl, and she, she seemingly hated it, but because her parents told her this is what you're going to do, mm-hmm. she struggled through it. She became a surgeon, an ENT, and I'm hoping that she to love it and appreciate yeah. it but I know at certain periods of time she was very miserable so yeah um you're right there's this it, it's 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 not easy to buck against the parents the grandparents and whatnot who have this ideal of what it is for you to be successful but it is your life yes sir
0: <clears throat> yes sir and one last thing the sure. biggest uh, thing that many people uh do not know about doctors, right? Many many doctors actually suffer from burnout. Right? Absolutely. There is a high percentage of doctors, like, burning out, and many people have hard time in their life because of that, right?
1: Yes. Can you talk more about that? Sure, sure. You know, it, the burnout can come from um, many, many different issues. One of the big issues in medicine nowadays is that Unlike 20, 30 years ago, where at what time, at which time most physicians actually had a private practice, so they worked for themselves. Nowadays, the rule is most physicians after leaving um, residency are actually working for some sort of corporate entity. So what happens is they are simply just employees of a medical practice or a hospital rather than the actual boss themselves. The importance of that is as an employee, you basically are there just to fulfill a job function and to take directions from your bosses. You don't have as much power to actually dictate the rules and the way that the environment should work. So, As a physician, you cannot necessarily say, hey, you know what? I think for the best medical care, I need to spend 25 minutes per patient. Mm -hmm. Your your hospital system, your bosses may not like that. They may say, no, that's too much time. We want you to spend 10 or 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. You may not be able to actually dictate the exact kind of patients you want to see. You're a specialist. You're like, oh, I would really love to build a practice that primarily sees this because that's what I have the most passion for. And the bosses may say, no. You can see some of that, but we want you to see all of this as well. Stuff that you're not trained for, stuff that you don't enjoy as much. So basically you don't have the control of the environment. Yes sir. Imagine you've done four years of undergraduate school, you've done four years of medical school, now you've done at least another three years of residency. I mean, think about what other careers, what other professions require so much training, and you come out and now you're essentially being treated. You're an employee. You're a technician. You know, you think about a lot of lawyers, you think about a lot of accountants, you think about a lot of other professionals which have not spent so much time training for their careers, yet they come out and they open their own businesses. You know, you think about law practices. Law practices, even if you're an employee, Law practices are basically headed by lawyers. You think about software engineers. You go work for Dell or something like that. Yeah, you're a software engineer for a big company, but they're headed by people who were originally software developers, and now they can be business people, but they have the training and the insight that you have. They understand what you do. Unfortunately, medicine is becoming different. You do all this training – You're at the top of your career in terms of training. You go out to work for a hospital, and now you have people with no medical training. These people are administrative people. These people are MBAs who are telling you how you are going to do your job. They have no idea what you do. They don't care about what you do. All Mm -hmm. they care is about the finances and efficiency. That is some of the burnout. People have done this training, they're ready to go out there and do good patient care and try to really build a good practice. And they're being told what they do with very what they should do with very little regard to the medicine of it. Mm-hmm. It's all about the finances and the economics. There's this frustration. Oh, wow. So that's what the burnout is. And what do I recommend people to do? You know, gosh, if you can. Try to work for yourself or at least try to find a medical practice which is headed or at the top is is headed by medical personnel. It's fine to have MBAs there. They're very important to keeping the finances going and whatnot. But you really want the vision, the temperament, the environment of your medical practice to really, at its core, to be directed at good medical care and not just finances.
0: Yes, sir. Wow, well, that's one of the biggest thing I noticed here. I had in, uh, surgery during my high school year, and uh, I'm like, wow, only 10 minutes? He <laughs> just kind of looked like he doesn't care. Because I grew up with a father who was a physician mm. in Guinea, okay. right? In Guinea, West Africa, you are a physician because you just want to serve your... The people, right? And uh, what I saw is like somebody who live at 6 a.m. and sometimes doesn't come back at night because he's trying to save lives. Sometimes nice. he bring people to the house yes. so he can't keep looking over them and nice. stuff like that, right. right? So when I came and th- the doctor just came in, oh, yeah, you need to have surgery next Then 10 minutes oh. out. It's like, whoa, this is how it is, right? So, uh, and... so. You have to really look into it and say, wow, it's not their fault. That's just, it's that pressure. And yes. coming from medical school where you have to pay back your medical, you mm-hmm. have all the
1: other things that you have to worry about with that. That's that's very frustrating. No, absolutely. You know, the average medical student now is graduating, I believe they say with about $200,000 wow. in, in medical debt. So you have this debt hanging over your head, And so, yeah, when you come out, you're like, gosh, I got to start paying this back. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you know, it's easy to just go take that corporate medical job where, you know, at the time you don't realize you're like, oh, they're going to pay me a great salary and whatnot. You don't understand that what you were kind of insulated in residency because in residency, you just focus Mm -hmm. on on medical training, which is what you should do for the most part. But you come out into You come out into the real world of medicine and you're like, oh, my gosh, these people are telling me I can only spend 10, 15 minutes here. I got to focus on billing. I got to spend more time doing the medical record than I actually spent with the patient. Because if I don't do the good medical record, they don't get to bill appropriately. So I don't get to generate enough income. And so my boss, either I don't get paid as much or my bosses will start hassling me. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff outside of medical care that leads to those 10-minute visits yes, that you experience. And it can be frustrating to to patients, and yes, it can sir. be frustrating to the physicians because most people go into medicine because they want to sit down and take good care of people. They don't want to deal with all this other stuff. Yes, but, sir. But they have to nowadays, unfortunately. Yes, sir. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen.
0: It's a privilege to have you on our podcast, Dr. Kwame. Thank you so much for giving us your time. My
1: pleasure. Thank you.
0: Yes, sir there you have it ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for tuning in to the mamba inspire you can do it to podcast we have another special guest next episode make sure you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date our youtube channel we have a twitter and instagram for updates look up mamba inspire peace